Welcome back to The Rate of Change with York Wealth Management. As advisors to some of the wealthiest families in the country, The Rate of Change is a podcast designed to help you in the pursuit of building long-term wealth through the insights of some of the brightest minds in asset management. I'm your host, Murdoch Gaddy, and today's podcast is speaking with Chris Moss, the Managing Director of Partners Group's European Private Equity Business, based in Paris. Partners Group is a global private markets firm born in 1996, Switzerland. If you're interested in learning how to generate strong, consistent returns whilst investing and managing over, wait for it, $150 billion of US dollars in private equity, then I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation with Chris. Chris outlines Partners Group's investing universe, which is across four main areas, private equity, private debt, private real estate, and private infrastructure. What I really enjoyed was discussing Chris's area of expertise, which is private equity. He shares his insights and strategies on what he sees they do best, which is business builders. He discusses how they capitalize on thematic growth trends, target buying attractive private businesses, and then transforming these assets into market leaders over a target period of five years where they choose to potentially sell or retain and hold on to the business. As a recording, the Global Value Fund, which targets a net 10 to 12% performance over a market cycle, has returned on average 11.3% over 10 years, 11.1% over five years. 10% over three years and 6.4% for the past 12 months. So before we get into the conversation, please remember this podcast is for entertainment purposes only and is not to be construed as investment advice, personal, general at all. I encourage you to listen to the disclaimer at the end of this podcast and to keep your feedback coming. You can reach me at mgatti at ywm.com.au. So with that being said, as always, I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. Chris Moss, welcome to the Rate of Change with York Wealth Management. Thank you, Murdoch. Pleasure to be here with you today. Fantastic. Why don't we uh, kick things off and telling us a little bit about yourself and uh, how you got into financial markets? Sure. Um, so I am currently a managing director with, uh, with Partners Group. Uh, I've got about, I think it's got to be 18 years of industry experience. I started in investment banking in, uh, in Europe. Um, and uh, after a couple of years in investment banking, where I worked in uh, M&A transactions and equity capital markets, I joined uh, the private equity industry, uh, focused on Europe. Um, and uh, at Partners Group, I've been particularly focusing on uh, investments in France uh, and some of them in the healthcare sector. So Partners Group is a very, very large global firm. So can you do you mind painting the picture for everyone about you know how big is Partners Group? How much money is currently under management these days, and how many people and funds? You know, how big is the partners group it, it empire ha- these days? It, it has become uh, a very large company. You're right. Um, we manage about $150 billion today of capital on behalf of our clients. 
And uh, we have about 1,900 employees that are scattered around the world. Uh, 20 offices, but the big hubs that we have, uh, historically, the one that we have, the biggest one, the headquarters are in Zug in Switzerland. That's not far away from Zurich. In the US, we have Denver. And in Asia, it's mostly out of Singapore. And then 20 offices in total around that. And then you go Sydney. <laughs> and then we Sydney. We've got Sydney. We've got Paris. So I'm from the Paris office. We've got a small office in Paris. Um, you know, we've got an office in Japan, office in New York, London. Um, but the big, the three big hubs are the ones I just uh, I just mentioned. All right. So uh, I, look for everyone. I've had a very good relationship with Partners Group for probably half a decade now. I'm very familiar with the strategies and how it works. Um, but you know, for someone potentially that's just hearing about Partners Group for the first time. Um, how would you best explain at a high level um, what is who is Partners Group and what do you do? So we're a firm born in, in Switzerland um, with uh, a focus really on private markets, right? So if we pick equities as an example, a big part of the equities market historically has been known as public equities, stocks that are listed. Uh, Partners Group has been focusing only on the private side, right? So private companies that are not listed uh, as investment opportunities. That's the common denominator across all the strategies to date of Partners Group. It's been focusing really on the private side of the economy, not the public side. Today, we have uh, strategies, uh, investment strategies that are really focused on uh, trying to build businesses. Basically, most of the returns we've been generating and returns we generate today for our clients are based on trying to transform assets, businesses that we own for a period of time to make them better before we exit them. That's the whole spirit. Right? We see ourselves as business builders. And this is, this is why we are in places like Denver or in Zug instead of being in some of the, uh, in, instead of having this, you know, center of main interest into the largest financial capitals of the world. We are a bit more Main Street than Wall Street, if you want. So would you say in a nutshell, on the simplest way, you're looking for, say, a business. Um, I, I love this analogy where you're looking for a bit legacy business that's been around for a long time, got a great following, you know, but uh, they still have a fax machine. And then you're looking at that business, you're going, you know what, if we pick up that business for X, um, we can, over a five-year period, uh, using modern technology, we could probably improve that and improve the efficiencies, make them more profitable with a couple of changes, and then potentially do some bolt-on acquisitions around and then exit out of that position in a number of years. Is that in so, a nutshell? So you're onto something, absolutely. In simple terms, uh, ultimately that's the aim. And that's how we've created our returns in the past is looking for opportunities where we can transform a business by applying some of those levers that you've just mentioned. But the only nuance I'd bring to this is that instead of starting to look for a business, we usually start by look, looking and researching market sectors where we see big transformation happening in the next 10 to 15 years. We love change. We love transformation. We see transformation as an opportunity. So when we find areas and sectors in the economy 
where we think for the next 10 to 15 years, there's going to be a big change that's going to drive growth. That gets us hugely really interested. We do research on those, and once we've identified those sectors, then we look for the companies that you've just mentioned. Right? We look for companies that are going to be exposed and that are going to be driving that change. Uh, and we'll try to own that company and, and help it drive that change and grow during that period of time. So during COVID, I, I did recall that uh, Partners Group was one of the largest owners of um, solar technology in South Australia, I mm-hmm. believe. And if you want to talk around that transaction, because I think that's exactly what happened, was it pre-COVID? Didn't you pick it up for like, I don't put numbers in your mouth, but you picked it up for an amount. And then after COVID, when all the valuations rallied substantially, when everyone thought hope was lost at one particular point, you managed to exit out for a very, very large multiple. So that's exactly what you're saying, correct? Do you want to talk around how that happened or maybe something a bit more interesting? Or No, no, absolutely. I think this, this is an, a good example. Um, and this is more on the infrastructure part of our business. Because as you've mentioned, Partners Group is, is pretty large and diversified. Um, and the investment you're referring to is, uh, is more on the infra side, but still very much the same, um, the same model of identifying a trend and a transformation in our economy. And here it's the transition in terms of energy, the energy transition, where um, we see fantastic opportunities to invest into certain types of companies in the next few years. Uh, and having made a transaction um, and, and, and transforming a business uh, before, uh, before selling it. Uh, on the private equity side, so thinking more about you know, the corporate world, we have been owning businesses, coming back to your example a little bit about the, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the old school archaic business models where you didn't have any computers, no digital uh, tools. But we've been owning a business, uh, for instance, in France that does property management services. Uh, and when we bought that business back in 2016, uh, this was a company that had um, most of its operating model that was relying on either huge piles of paperwork and an old set of PCs and old software that would take hours to generate anything that would be uh, of, of, of use for the, uh, for the company. And we bought that business with the view of completely transforming it and digitizing that business. So we took control of the business in 2016. What was the name of the business? So the business at that time was called Foncia. Um, and um, Some of the numbers around it, how big was that business? So that, that was a business uh, already in, in France. It was probably about 1.8 billion euros of enterprise value, so a reasonably large business. Um, it was running uh, you know, multiple hundreds of agencies around France. Uh, particularly focused not on the transactions in real estate, but more in terms of the block management, right? Everything that relates to the admin of block management of, of buildings. If you've got multiple apartments, you've got to make decisions on who's, you know, should we change the light bulbs? Should we change the uh, operator of the, uh, of the, uh, and the maintenance provider for the lifts? Should we vote on replacing the roof? All those kind of decisions in a big building where you have multiple owners owning apartments in France, that's a regulated, um, that's a regulated industry where you need uh, an admin body that will 
that will usually uh, take care of all those tasks. And when we acquired Foncia, the business was still very much using uh, requests based on you know, paperwork and an old system in terms of uh, in terms of software. And we thought that this was a this was a sector that was going to get disrupted. There's going to be some kid coming out of school at some point, and he's going to digitize completely that industry. Um, and uh, and there was a risk. It was a risk for Foncia and for other businesses. But we took this as an opportunity to transform the business. And instead of waiting for someone to disrupt, we thought, let's do it ourselves. Let's run the whole digitization of the business and of that industry. And so at that time, we made a pretty bold decision. Instead of deciding to um, use an existing software, because you have some ERP softwares out there that you could, uh, that you could buy or like, you know, take a license, we instead decided to do this ourselves. So we recruited a team of software developers and software engineers, about 80 of them in France. We attracted that kind of tech talent. Um, so you we, ran a startup in a legacy business. Exactly. We ran a, sta a startup in a legacy business, which you know, the brand name at that time was not really very appealing for those young guys and, and girls joining from the tech industry. So we had to actually, to attract them, we had to put them into a very nice building right in the center of Paris, make sure that you've got foosball tables, PlayStation 5s, um, you know, the same kind of gig that you would find in Silicon Valley. And for about a year and a half, a couple of years, um, they worked you know, days and weekends on developing a new ERP, on developing a, a whole you know, technology backbone, some applications that you can have on your smartphone. Um, and... That saved us a huge amount of costs, made the business much more productive, and removed the paperwork. And we did this over our ownership period, um, which has really allowed us also to scale the business. That's so interesting. And then there's so many other questions there. How do you incentivize that team? With a startup, you get equity. Was there a revenue share? Actually, I kind of want to know. Like, how did you? Okay, obviously, there's the there's the you're running things, but then you have the managers because they're the creatives, right? And, you know, you want to incentivize these people to get involved and, you know, everyone wants their name to be on the, you know, the book which they create. So how did you incentivize that team? Yeah, you need, so the alignment of interest uh, is a key tool in private equity, right? And, and in particular in our strategy at, at Partners Group, because uh, whenever we own those businesses, if you want to transform those businesses, you need to make sure that, um, Everyone is, is rowing in the same direction, is, is incentivized on the same outcomes. So that means that you know, our clients who invest into the products, into the programs and the funds, um, basically are rewarded if you generate a good return. If you generate a good return, then the investment team who has done that investment should be aligned and get incentivized on that return. But also the management team of the underlying portfolio company should share also in this upside. So the top managers and some of those teams, some of those employees to attract them and to keep them motivated need to also have some plans which allow them to share on the upside. It can be some stock plans, some option plans, um, but that is a key, that is a key driver of, uh, of alignment of interest and incentivization for, for that type of talent. So your main strategy is you get this built, you get it up and running, it happens for five years and you're looking for an exit. Is that the plan for all these businesses? Because what I'm hearing with that particular business, uh, what was 
billion, correct? By the time you were done after five years, what was the value? And oh, more importantly, what was the profit margin? Um, and sorry, two probably really important questions. What was market share? And what was the, what was the market share and the profit margin in the beginning? And then by the end of it, what was market share and, pro- and the profit margin? Yeah. So in the case, in the case of this company, um, we, um, at the same time as we were digitizing it, we wanted to scale the business and grow it, right? Because the digitization itself makes it more productive and you can see the profitability margins increasing by about 10% thanks to this. Um, but that doesn't necessarily help you grow the business. It makes it more productive. To grow the business and to scale it up, we've uh, adopted in, in this specific case a bit of a platform strategy where um, in, in the company itself, we created an integration factory, a team of about 40 people that was only focused on looking for and acquiring small agencies so that we could run a bit of a buy and build, a platform play, and acquire small agencies that we would integrate to the platform. And as we scaled this up, and as we had this kind of digital tool in the background making it more efficient, we've been able to round this up to about one and a half acquisition every single week. So that's a business today that in a normal week will integrate one and a half other businesses. And that's been growing the scale of the, of the, of the company quite massively over, over the years. So just to summarize, bought a legacy business with a phenomenal brand that's been around for ages that required help, proceeded to run a startup tech business to improve the efficiencies and then improve the scale by a, a series of bolt-on acquisitions at an average of one and a half a week and the integration required to do that. So after that was all done, when, when was this done? 2016. Has, has the business been sold or you still own it? So we still own it and we still control it. Um, but what we did is uh, at some point in time, um, we sold part of the business, a minority stake to another financial investor who wanted to join uh, the, the, uh, the journey. Um, but we still own the company as of today. We still control it. Um, and what we've done in a kind of second step is, um, and that's why the company is not only called Foncia today. Foncia is, is its French legacy name. But we have now um, started really internationalizing that business, right? And what we've done successfully in France, we're replicating this now in the UK market, where we started with two significant acquisitions in the, uh, in the UK market in England. And we're going to be using this as a platform to expand the business more and more uh, in, in that part of the world. So the other question which we have is, um, in 2016 was a very interesting time for these types of businesses. There was value to be had before you know, money got printed and things got, kind of got out of control. So what do you do in, say, 2024 or the past couple of years when um, you know, valuations may not have looked as attractive? So how do you deal with you know, looking to buy businesses now when valuations have just gotten out of control? Even though the comeback and beer, they're still quite high compared to where they used to be. Yeah. How do you deal with that? So we've actually, we've actually seen uh, fewer transactions. Right? If you look at the past, uh, you know, call it 18 months, the volume of transactions in private equity and, and the number of transactions that we've done ourselves has really come down sharply. Um, and there's different reasons for this. 
Uh, one of them is the fact that the credit markets uh, were not as supportive. It was difficult to finance transactions. But one of the key reasons is actually just what you mentioned, is a bit of a mismatch on the valuations, where us as a buyer, we're not finding the, um, the multiples, the valuation multiples that we were comfortable with at transacting compared to sellers who still had expectations for selling their businesses that are back in the old world two, two years ago where we were at the peak of the market. Um, so today we would only transact at a valuation which we feel is fair and represents the new environment, which typically means a lower valuation. Uh, and there's few, you know, there's few transactions where the sellers are ready to transact at that level. Uh, it's going to take a bit of time for everything to readjust and for uh, the seller and the buyer to find a win-win on valuations. Yeah, that's uh, very interesting. So you mentioned as well that you see thematics uh, and then changes. You look for the thematic first, and then you look for the business. So where do you see the, um, the direction now? What, what's, what do you, where's the opportunity now you're currently seeing? So we find that I mean, there's a lot of opportunities across all four sectors where we invest in. Um, we invest, so the four sectors that we focus on in private equity are uh, healthcare, uh, technology, goods and products, uh, and services. And across all four of them, our teams will research very specific thematics where we can get some convictions. Um, and there's plenty of opportunities, right? Because we know that for the next 10, 15 years, the world is going to change you know, massively. Um, so we've, um, if, I, you know, if I pick some examples in uh, pharmaceuticals, let's say we are very uh, interested in all the changes that are happening on the outsourcing side in pharmaceutical. If you look at the pharmaceutical industry, uh, it's an industry where the big players, the big pharma players, over the past 20, 30 years, increasingly have been outsourcing certain parts of the value chain. They don't do everything themselves anymore. It's become too complex, um, and uh, they prefer to focus on some kind of core competencies that they have, and then delegate or outsource other parts of the value chain. And some of those parts, we see very attractive growth rates, um, especially if you have companies that have a niche specialty uh, and it can be uh, it can be something relating to the production. It can be around the packaging. It can be around the research side of things. Those companies are not only enjoying the overall growth of the pharmaceutical industry as a whole, which is attractive in itself, but they're also on the receiving end of all those outsourcing, right? uh, which makes the trends, the growth trends, sometimes you know, north of ten percent uh, uh, per annum. So. In the pharmaceutical, how, how much of the portfolios is in, say, pharmaceuticals? Like, what's the so if if you look ratings? at uh, so if you look at some of the recent transactions that we've done, um, so there's two that fit very well within that thematic of um, uh, we we call this speed to market and outsourcing trend. So we've made two portfolio investments on the control side um, in um, in in that in that kind of thematic. One of them is in the uh, in the U.S. Uh, a company called PCI, which used to be mostly focused on the packaging side, and has since then really uh, gone up in terms of the value chain. And the other one is a European business that we acquired a couple of years ago called uh, Pharmathen, uh, which has somewhat of a unique technology 
where uh, they're uh, one of the few companies in the world that can convert an injectable into a long-acting injectable. So what does that mean? Um, to, to try to put, you know, not be too theoretical, um, certain, um, certain treatments today, for example, uh, schizophrenia, um, had uh, treatments where the patient needed to get an injection on a daily or weekly basis historically. So you need to go to the doctors, to the nurse, and get an injection once a week. Pharmathen uh, is able to use that proven molecule that has been proven for now years uh, and is actually at the generic stage, but instead of having it into a formulation where you require a weekly injection, it can have it into a formulation which is a long-acting injectable, which it will spread in your body over a period of two, three, or even more months. So as a patient, you get the same treatment, but instead of having to go to the doctor every single week for an injection, you can have an injection once every quarter, um, and that presents a unique kind of a, a benefit for you. We're getting into the weeds a bit, but this is actually quite interesting. Um, there's a there's a drug that's been running around now called Ozempic, the diabetes drug. It's practically you can't go anywhere without someone talking about it, or a mate, or a mate that used to be 120 kilos is now 90 kilos. <laughs> I've heard about this. I got to try it out. <laughs> mate, I don't think you need to, but yeah, there's a the yeah, but you have to. It's it's literally um, diabetes drug, so you know pill form, also cream, or you have to st- stab yourself. Um, but that's daily. I had a friend that do it and sores which you used to get so the pharmaceutical drug it's just fascinating the uh, innovations they have in this particular industry but say something like that would you potentially utilize that product and then combine it with say ozempic and then it's something that takes from a daily injection you can have a once a month and it goes through for a, is that how that works so you know, so yes there is uh, there's definitely something there that is of great interest to this portfolio company that we own um We've actually made a move in that direction. Uh, the, uh, the, the usually, so that kind of treatment is based on what is called peptides. Um, and we've recently acquired this company of ours, Pharmathen, made an acquisition to acquire uh, a peptide API um, uh, producer. And we've been able to also announce a partnership with a big pharma company. Um, where we are will, we will, our intention is to position ourselves exactly in that area of obesity treatments uh, once the uh, exclusivities run out so that we're ready to offer uh, an alternative and an alternative type of formulation and treatment that could be, uh, that could be better for the, uh, for the patient. So that's definitely in our pipeline How of growth. Funny. It's just that you say this, and my brain sort of thinks that, and they're like, "Yeah, that's the deal that we're doing." <laughs> we, it's we, it's one hundred percent. And it's funny you mentioned peptides. Like I've just got into doing jujitsu. Way too much Joe Rogan. And um, but yeah, you know, when you're 37, you're not as fit as you used to be. You're tweaking elbow. You're doing it. You're out. And, and then, but I, I keep listening to two peptides. And yes, some of them are illegal and some are good. But um, I've had a, a few friends do them, and one did a. No, no, okay, by the way, not a doctor, not advocate for anything. You know, please speak to your local practitioner. <laughs> uh, but you know, your idea is you can strengthen your muscles. And, and a gentleman I know did it. Um, particular course, he increased his uh, strength and weight by like eight kilos compared to his frame, and then proceeded to retain sixty to seventy percent of the strength he'd gotten from, uh, and then just doing normal body weight. But then because of that, um, he's had less injuries. So what I find quite fascinating about peptides 
people get injured quite quickly. You do muscle damage, but it has the capacity to um, heal you faster. Uh, it blows my mind. So, but yes, again, it's something which you have to take, you know, uh, daily or a couple of days apart, which is a bit of a pain in the ass. So linking these two different technologies, um, yeah. what a fascinating yes, and, opportunity. And, and again, so we, we touch upon a lot of different things here, but you can sense that um, there's a lot of change happening in that industry, right? And you, 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 you've mentioned Rosempic. Uh, we see um, a great growth opportunity in the longer term. Um, now we, with a company like Pharmathen and just generally, I think culturally where we invest, um, we, we don't like binary risks. So we're not going to take a risk on a treatment that has not been proven yet. We'll only focus on treatment that has been proven, that has some history. Pharmathen only focuses typically on uh, generics that have you know, multiple years of records, but it changes the formulation uh, and it acts as a partner to the big pharma players to make them a bit more uh, a, bit, a bit more efficient. Um, but just looking at that side of things, and, and with all those changes that we see in the economic environment, in our societies, uh, in the next few years, there's a lot of areas where you can invest as a private equity investor. And a lot of companies that are not in the public space, but only available in the private space. Um, and, and that's where we focus. Private markets. It's very, very interesting. Now, I'd be uh, remiss if we didn't uh, touch on um, the private debt side for a little bit. I know your specialty is on the, on the direct investments, um, but I wouldn't mind just getting um, a bit of the lay of the land. Um, I was speaking to one of your colleagues and they mentioned that uh, there's a number of loans coming through to maturity, especially a lot of you know corp- corporate property loans. And there's concerns out there in the market that you know the period up into 2028 might be a bit rough um but what what stance has um partners group taken on that because my understanding is you you're seeking to um sell a number of the assets that have loans coming up to that maturity date and then retaining um do you want to do you mind giving a bit of color around that yeah no i think it's it's uh so if you look at the past year and a half it's fair to say that um we've seen the credit markets contracting and and and, and lenders uh not necessarily being um, out there and as available as debt was 24 months ago. So it's more difficult to secure debt, to finance your investments, and the terms of that debt can be a bit more expensive. Um, so I think it will at some point, uh, if I look at the you know, private equity industry, but it's also true for real estate, it's also true for infrastructure, there's going to be a period of time where uh, some of the investors uh, or owners of assets who have debt with those assets will face uh, a maturity and will need to do something about it. And either it will be at a point in time in the coming years where the debt market is back and and is available and the terms are uh, relatively favorable and they'll be able to rearrange that financing. Um, Or the risk is that uh, it's not available or not available for that type of credit. And that will trigger those investors, those owners to do something with their investment. They're going to need to sell potentially some of their assets, some of their businesses, because they don't have the tools to refinance that company at that time. Um, If I look at our portfolio, and again, I'm going to switch back to um, the private equity portfolio at at Partners Group, which I know best. Um, Today, we um, 
we're not facing this wall of refinancing and maturities. The, if you look at 97% of the debt that we have in our portfolio companies in businesses like Pharmathen or like Foncia, 97% of that debt has maturities that go well beyond 2025. And actually, it's more than 60% that goes beyond 2030. So uh, I think we, we've been quite proactively managing that refinancing uh, risk and that maturity risk. Um, and what we see is as we own assets and as we transform them over the years, typically those, those companies uh, generate uh, more and more EBITDA, more and more earnings. And that means that the leverage actually gets, the debt gets reimbursed or gets to such a level that it becomes really a small part of the capital structure. So by the time the maturity will reach, there's not a, you know, a big worry today that uh, we will have to sell assets just because of the debt issue. Not something that we, uh, we, we feel as a concern as we, as we stand today. Well, let's actually touch on that, the, the psychology of investing. Um, that's one thing I've always found quite interesting. You know, you have the capacity to have the patience and then you're actually executing the patience. Whilst, you know, you look at some American investors or institutions, they run by the quarters or, you know, you have to do something by a particular date and then um, that can lend to some poor decision-making. Um, how does it work with, um, is there any timelines, deadlines, or you just see a great asset, you hold on to it until it doesn't become a great asset? Like, how does it work? No, I think the, 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 the beauty of um of the private ownership is that you usually can take a longer term perspective. You're not, your agenda is not dictated by quarterly earnings. You're not going to be making short term decisions to please the market. You know what, you know, you know the direction you want to take that business into, you know, the initiatives you want to be rolling out. But when I mentioned, for example, the digitization of Foncia, this is a multi-year project. It's not something where you can deliver results quarterly. Right? It takes transforming a business fundamentally takes time, and you need to give yourself uh, enough time. Now, obviously, it's not quarterly, but there are other uh, drivers in terms of time frame that will um, that will come into effect and have some influence. Uh, we usually, when we make a new investment on the private equity side we give ourselves usually about five years as a rule of thumb to run this transformation of the company and sell it. Uh, is it going to be exactly five years? No. There's businesses that I remember selling within four years. There's some, it's taken us six or seven years. Um, there's not the same rush to sell them. We'll usually keep, uh, you know, keep some companies um, for an extra few months if we feel that there's compounding return opportunities. Uh, but at least there's not this kind of short-term agenda, which you know makes you make short-term decisions that could jeopardize actually the longer-term transformation potential. So when you buy these companies, how do you work with them? Is the are these are generally founder-led um, companies? Uh, do do the, does the founder or the gentleman or the lady who's running the business do they still retain a role, or is it purely you take over and your management team? How does it work? There's multiple ways uh, of, of doing it. So we've had some founder businesses where the founder or the family stayed involved and uh, not in a control capacity, in a kind of minority capacity, but stayed involved, uh, have also helped, um, usually taking a board of director position and continuing to guide a bit the business with, with, with us in, in the control. 
Um, and we've had also opportunities where the former owner completely you know, disappeared, right, and, and moved on, and, and the page was turned, and, and then Partners Group uh, was uh, the only one in, in, in control. Uh, but the governance part is, is key to get things right, right? If you want to transform a company, let's say in five years, um, you need to make sure that the governance framework that you put in place um, is effective, right? Who makes what kind of decisions? What are the decision-making bodies? How frequently do they meet? And who actually makes those decisions? You need to have the right people there, and you need to make sure you have an alignment. Um, so the way we create the alignment, I mean, we, we've, we've discussed about it in terms of compensation. There's also an alignment around the strategic direction of the business. Everyone needs to be rowing in the same direction. The management team needs to be on board with the plan. The investment team needs to be on board with that plan. And also the board of directors, where we sometimes have some external seasoned professional that join the board of directors. Um, so that's how the governance framework is usually put in place. But it is essential. If you don't have the governance right, you're not going to be efficient in your decision-making pro uh, process, and you might actually make mistakes. So that's on the internal side. But how do you deal with external factors? And I suppose, you know, it, this is always the good old, what are the risks and, you know, how they play out? But uh, since you're, you know, from the Paris office, um, well, the Champs-Élysées isn't what I used to remember it to be. Um, probably a lot of people don't remember it the way that it currently is right now. Um, but with external factors, um, <clears throat> how do you deal with that? And the, what I'm currently referring to is if you, if you rewind, what, a decade ago, a bit longer, the European Union wasn't putting the controls on the local people of France that they are currently today. And I think I read somewhere in the article that a number of those um, horrendous terms that have been pushed onto the farmers have been overturned just, I think, this week. So in does this partners group take a, a, a view um, or a standpoint um, on any of that, that side of politics? Do you invest accordingly? Like, how does that work with, uh, you know, thematics external to kind of what you control, but they're literally dictating the direction of where the country is going, which you're investing in, yeah. and then hence the companies. How do you deal with that? Yeah, I think, I mean, there's parts of, there are things that are out of your control and we try to minimize this. So we, we will, when we invest and when we select our thematics and we select the businesses that we invest in, um, we like to have opportunities where we feel that the destiny of the investment, most of it is in our control. And that's why we, for example, don't like to invest into sectors where there's big influence of commodity prices, let's say or of uh, regulations that can change overnight um, with us completely losing control of the destiny of that business. So we try to limit this as much as possible. We, um, so I'll, 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 I'll take another um, maybe you know, spin at what you just uh, mentioned, because uh, regulations are a key part of our thematic thinking. Um, and we try to identify actually thematics where we take a 10 or 15 years view in a sector, in an industry, and where we feel that regulations are actually going into one direction and they're going to actually be uh, helping that sector and helping the growth and the resilience of that sector. So I'll give you an example um, of a recent thematic that we, um, that we transacted in. Uh, for a number of years, our team that focuses on uh, services has looked at the inspection services for critical energy. So 
think about oil and gas pipelines, for instance. Oil and gas pipelines, if you look at 40, 50 years ago, um, you didn't really have tools to inspect them. So you could face a situation where one day your pipeline cracks, right? There's a crack, there's a metal corrosion, and then you've got a terrible leakage. Today, you have a number of proven technologies that allow pipeline operators to get a service company to do a full audit and inspection of their whole pipeline network. And regulators have been then imposing on the pipeline operators to carry out those inspections every three, five, or seven years. Right? So the, we see the regulatory framework in that specific sector only going in one direction with people becoming much more focused on the environment, wanting to mitigate the risk of leakage and a spillage, um, the regulators, we see them continuing to impose more and more frequent um, inspections. Uh, so we see the regulatory tailwind being uh, more of a you know, help uh, and, and, and growing growth driver for an industry like inspection of oil and gas pipelines. Yeah, it's quite interesting. I don't want to get too much into the politics of it, but I kind of can't help myself. I've always found with markets that, you know, the, the best thing, just like with politics, is everyone actually wants the exact same thing in the middle, but everyone kind of goes left and then goes right. And then after their entire journey ends back in the middle, there's just different ways of doing it. The other thing which I found, you probably found the same thing with markets, is that when one thematic gets pushed too far the other way, a lot of people get hurt, a lot of industries get hurt, and then but the opportunity in that is just pushed so far down like an elastic band that it snaps right back up into the middle. So there's a big opportunity. And what we've seen recently is exactly what you're discussing, is that, um, well, again, the European Union and many other things, you know, green by 2050, obviously it's good for the environment, but various things that we need to survive, like gas, Gas is a requirement across the entire world to survive, not just to heat your homes, just for there is numerous there's some products that you can only create them with gas, which is the bedrock of our society. You can't get rid of them. Um, you need these things to exist, but they've been pushed so far down that it's created an opportunity for other companies, like in Australia, you've got the Northern Territory up there and the Beetaloo Base and the Americans have come in. And then they've just come right up after the other side. And then you're discussing as well, like with the pipelines, yes, technologies come in, but those pipelines wouldn't exist if you didn't have the commodity to begin with. So again, yeah, I'm getting a bit sidetracked here, but I'm just finding it interesting um, since you're dealing with private markets, how you uh, deal with that level of risk. So do you see these events play out as opportunity to invest or would you avoid um, areas because it's too uh much politics if yes. that makes sense like uh, what's the policy with like do you get into the weeds when it comes to this noise or no we we definitely um would avoid areas where um we feel there's part of the destiny of that business some drivers that are just too much out of control and where you can't really predict where things are headed, right? And where a political decision or regulatory decision could overnight completely change the business model, um, that wouldn't make us you know, comfortable. We hate binary outcomes. Yeah. Right? Um, but we, uh, we can uh, take a view on some of the trends behind some thematics that can be, um, you know, uh, that can be helped by regulations and where we see regulations going in the next, you know, in the next ten to fifteen years, uh, but that's not going to be the key area where we're going to bet. Right? We're not, we're never going to make a bet just on regulations. Uh, I think it's it's helpful and it provides comfort to know that you've got a regulatory framework that can 
generate resilience and growth of, of demand. Um, but that's only part of the equation. Well, let's play the fun game. We're in Australia, um, obviously, and we've seen many thematics play out in the past couple of years. The fun game is what is going to be the next thematic for 2024? What's going to be the next what? Come on, get your crystal ball out. What do you reckon, <laughs> the, the, what do you reckon the, the next thematic is going to be? Yeah. Um, for Australia specifically? Yeah, yeah. Why, uh, not? why not? A lot of, a lot of Aussie listeners. Uh, I mean, I, to be honest, I'm, I'm based in Paris. <laughs> this feels like really far away for me to be able to make, a, uh, to make an educated well, it doesn't, guess. It doesn't, it doesn't have to be like specifically Australia, but where do you, like, obviously most people who speak with now, like the launch of the artificial intelligence, like it's amazing. Um, and then it's just so interesting about human beings' short memories, as in we all push so hard one way, you know, during COVID times. And then it's as if everyone just, COVID what? It's just forgotten unless you're, you know, people got you know, hurt or injured, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, there was just so many, it's just been such a volatile period for the past five years. There's, it's, it's been like Melbourne, four seasons in one day. So I'm just yeah. curious as in, you know, you're making um, investments, you know, long-term with long-term um, thematics in mind in private markets. I'm just curious where you see the um, opportunities coming. Yeah. Um. So artificial intelligence is definitely something that everyone has on their minds. Um, and, and we look at it, uh, I think, th there's kind of two ways that we, uh, that we look at it. You could look at this as an area to make uh, investments, right? So acquire a company that focuses on developing solutions that are just AI-based solutions. Um, that is not, I would say, as of today, that's not necessarily an area where we're spending too much time, right? Because we feel that, um, you know, AI is probably in its kind of maturity curve that is still a little bit uh, at, the, uh, at the early stages. Um, and a lot of the companies um, will need to be you know, proven and established over time before they are stable enough for us to get the comfort in investing to AI as a standalone product. But we can also look at AI across all our portfolio companies. And every single new investment that we make today, we look at, you know, could AI disrupt it? Could it be used actually as an opportunity to make that business more efficient, more productive? And there we're applying um, a lot of, um, uh, I would say, operating knowledge also that we have internally uh, or having recourse to external experts to help our portfolio investments really leverage AI as a tool uh, in the future, in the value creation journey. Uh, but coming back to your question in terms of you know, thematics that get, get us excited in, um, uh, in 2024, I'll, I'll pick one, which is going to sound really boring, probably very boring. Um, but we've looked, uh, we've looked at uh, the pest control pest industry control. Yeah, uh, now for quite some time. And, um, and I think we'll do something in pest control in 2024. The reason why we find this, I mean, it sounds really old school, but the reality is that, you know, pests have been here for centuries, right? And they, they haven't disappeared. And um, we see increasingly technology, um, you know, new technologies being able to reinvent a little bit the way that you manage pest control, right? You can have now an investment into units that can scan an area, a much broader area, and instantly, by way of connection to the internet, 
give you a centralized input of whether a pest has been detected, a pest risk, so that you can mitigate and address that risk almost in, on, the, on the spot, on the day, instead of having to wait for a week before you detect it visually. And there, the problem has become way, way bigger. So I'm kind of laughing. I want, I want you to continue, but I would love to ask what do you define as pests in this scenario? The reason why I say that is you ask anyone in Australia what a pest is. But right now, if you go to California, uh, a couple of uh, the beautiful government officials up there said, oh, we love the bears. Don't kill the bears. But guess what's happening? A lot of people's dogs are missing. So <laughs> the bears are coming down from the mountains and they're hungry. And uh, now the bears are considered pests. And then, you know, you... you you go to some parts of uh, Southeast Asia, tigers are considered pests. You go out the bush, you know, there's a couple of uh, guys I went to boarding school, they'll tell you the pigs and the kangaroos are pests because they just get into their crops. Yeah. So the <laughs> so that's why I'm kind of having it laughing to myself is what do you define as a pest? So yeah, one model? example, <laughs> especially taking a European hat, because we're looking at this mostly in Europe. I mean, rats would be, uh, you know, rats would be a good, uh, a, a good example to be, uh, to, to be using here. Um, and so, you know, that's where we see, I mean, we see resilience because pests have not disappeared and rats have never disappeared and uh, will continue to be, uh, will continue to be out there in Europe. Uh, we see an opportunity. Historically, it's been a market where pest control in Europe has been very fragmented. You have a lot of independent small companies that deal with pest control. Um, but we see an opportunity to actually consolidate some of this and create larger platforms that can invest into those new technologies and new tools to make it more efficient and to address those issues a bit more proactively. Um, and so that's a thematic which can sound you know, a bit under the radar. You wouldn't necessarily think about it when you're, you're, you're talking about AI or the latest generation of peptides. Uh, we're talking about pest control, which has been something going on for years or centuries, um, but where we believe that you know, there's an interesting transformation that could happen in the coming uh, in the coming years, and where we could lead that transformation. That'd be interesting. Just don't tell my daughter; she likes the movie Ratatouille. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's um, yeah, that's quite fascinating. Um, I suppose what we should also just uh, touch on as well, um, kind of didn't, forgot about it. Um, we need to touch on the the performance. Um, you know, list people listening to this going, this sounds quite interesting. Um, you know, how, so how does this translate into you know, uh, you know, if I work with partners group, what does this translate into? And like, what's the level of volatility you're seeing in the portfolios? Let's let's talk about the one that I'm familiar with the most, so the, the global value fund, right? So how's the performance been with that? You know. And how does it deal with um, perform, you know, bearish markets and bullish markets? Yeah. So, I mean, the, the performance has been actually pretty, uh, you know, pretty consistent over the uh, over the years. Um, and I'm not sure if I'm allowed to, you know, to cite uh, performance figures or at least precise. Oh no, ones. you are. That's why we got a disclaimer at the end. And then don't worry <laughs> if, if if anything's off, I'll, I'll I'll fix them up and stick them in the introduction. <laughs> No, but you're you know, you're talking about net performance figures that are in the kind of eleven, you know, eleven to thirteen percent. Um, so that's the performance of the, uh, that's the kind of net returns of the, uh, of the program with the volatility, if you compare it to especially, uh, public markets, that is actually much, you know, much, much lower, right? Very, uh, very low volatility. The other way to look at, and, and especially as an investment professional, the way we also look at performance is much more focused on the growth in earnings of our underlying portfolio companies. Because ultimately, that's what drives the financial 
uh, performance. And um, if I look at last year, the portfolio companies, so all those individual companies that we own into that program, the earnings have been increasing by about 12.5%. Right? Now, a year like 2023, even though that average uh, growth in earnings remains very healthy and consistent with the past, uh, 2023 was still a difficult year. And so what you see when you look through the average is that you have a bit of a bigger dispersion of, of results. You'll have some of our portfolio companies and investments that have completely outperformed and have been growing at you know, the 20, 30% rates. But you also have some of them that have been uh, a little bit less, of, you know, a bit more affected by uh, the recent environment where growth, especially, for example, in retail, uh, has come down a bit compared to prior peaks. Yeah, it's, um, it's been very interesting to see. Um, whenever I look at the chart, it kind of just looks like a staircase. And then uh, I believe uh, 2020 was quite interesting. Um, Oh, that's actually one thing I want to discuss as well. Um, a, a number of people have potentially seen um, what happened when the partners group listed fund listed, uh, you know, in 2020, that was di a difficult. Um, and some people understand the, di the different relationship between a listed fund versus an unlisted fund. And uh, what, I believe you partners group, no, is it still listed? I can't recall. Um, would you say that the business model that partners group has is probably better in an unlisted environment or due to the volatility we're seeing or no no i think um so the the underlying companies that we own are private right and we want them to ideally continue to be private because this private framework allows us to carry out this transformation and give ourselves the kind of five years we need and the control that we need to carry this out but then when you think about the, um, the programs where our clients invest to get access to that investment content, um, those evergreen programs, the semi-liquids, the listed strategies to get access to this make a lot of sense for some of our clients. And I think that's where we've been a pioneer for many, many years um, on, the, uh, uh, on, on those kind of evergreen uh, vehicles. Um, and uh, if anything, we expect the growth of that, um, of those types of products to, you know, to continue being pretty, you know, pretty, uh, pretty significant in the coming years. Yeah. With listed ones, it's always interesting. I find that people don't understand unlisted assets that much when they're listed and, you know, if something happens, they end up trading at a gigantic discount in NAV, which is fantastic. If you're looking, if you have a bunch of cash looking to work, it's across the, across the board. Um, yeah, that's, that's quite interesting. Um, before we, you know, Chuff off for the afternoon. Um, since you have come all the way from Paris, um, I'm just interested for my own. What is exactly what exactly is happening in Paris? We're seeing a lot of headlines um, with the farmers, and I believe there was a resolution that just came through recently. What is exactly happening there? How is that essentially affecting companies in Paris or France in general? I mean. There's always uh, there's always a risk if you come and visit Paris that you know you'll come in the middle of uh, a bit of a demonstration and some people being a bit upset. Uh, so uh, you know if, if I remember correctly, about a couple of years ago, um, I was receiving all those pictures from friends around the world sending me you know, pictures of garbage being lit on fire in the middle of Paris because we had a strike on the garbage collection side. Um, 
when uh, and these days over the past few weeks you're right uh, it's been mostly uh, farmers that have been disgruntled by uh, some of the recent changes in policies and the difficulties they're facing to sell their products versus you know when certain products are being imported um, and uh, to communicate this uh, you know this uh, the, 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 this issue and to try to make things move uh, we've had a lot of farmers you know, getting on their tractors and uh, and then coming up to Paris to try to you know shake things up and 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 uh, and try to you know get out of that uh, situation. Uh, I think that has kind of you know, progressively died down and um, and they've been heard and measures are being you know put in place to uh, uh, to change that. But there's always a chance when you'll come and visit or when you'll read the newspaper that you'll see something pretty that looks pretty wild going on in Paris. But when you live there every day, uh, either you get used to it or, you know, you, I get sometimes surprised by the pictures I get sent from people because I didn't even realize that things were getting as bad as this. That's why I just head straight to rooms. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I was going to ask you what keeps you up at night, but it's like the, you know, farmers, not so much because it gets appeased. But what, what keeps you up at night and what gets you out of bed in the morning? Um. What keeps me up at night? Um, you know, probably my kids. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't see them often enough, and um, uh, and they'll usually ask for some good entertainment in the evening. But no, I mean, in terms of in terms of concerns, um, I think it's it's we're seeing an environment uh, where uh, there's been a lot of changes in terms of macro changes over the past few years. I think a lot of that has stabilized a bit. The um, you know the big kind of question marks are uh, either you have some of those surprises, geopolitical surprises that you know pop up, you know, unfortunate events like what we've seen in the Middle East or uh, or between Ukraine and Russia uh, that you sometimes can't really predict, and you get surprised by this, and you never say never, right? Some of those bad surprises could pop up again. Uh, in the uh, in the next few months, in the next few years, um, and and otherwise, it's just more generally about the growth in the environment, the growth in the economy. Um, we've had still a few years where we've seen just you know pretty strong and sustainable levels of growth, but uh, difficult to see if if that might uh, come down a little bit in the uh, in the coming years. Um, so that would be you know, growth is probably the one thing which is key. I think all the other parameters, to be honest, we can adjust. Right? Higher rates, we can adjust to it in private equity. Inflation, we've been able to adjust to a higher inflation rate. Supply chain disruptions, we've also been able to adapt. But once you have the growth engine, generally, that starts coming down, everything becomes more, much more complicated. Right? So that's probably the one parameter where I see a bigger you know, influence uh, and potential impact in the, uh, in the future. Um, and what wakes me, you know, in the morning, what gets me really excited is, um, you know, is, is all those changes that we can, we can drive in the portfolio companies, right. Is working on projects where we're going to be able to, you know, help, uh, businesses open up new, um, you know, new, uh, uh, new factories in, in, uh, in the U S or, uh, help some of them tour China and uh, be able to find some new points of uh, points of presence over there. So all those kind of strategic projects where we can really help businesses get transformed um, and, and have a real impact 
on all the stakeholders, you know, not just the financial shareholders, but also the employees that work in those businesses, the clients. That's that's really that's really exciting. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Pretty big world out there. Well, Chris, it's been really nice uh, having you on. If anyone wants to learn more about Partners Group, um, what's the best way for them to get some information? Well, if you're uh, if you're in uh, if you're in Australia, uh, please you know come visit us in Sydney. We've got a nice uh, nice little office over here. Um, you got our website, um, and um, yeah, if you come by Paris, I'm, I'd be really happy to. I mean, it's a bit risky to say this. I might get a lot of uh, a lot of emails for lunch, but a good lunch in Paris, even though there's always a bit of a you know, chaos around it, um, you know, that's uh, that's something that uh, you you can't miss. Oh, I just realized, what is your top two favorite restaurants in Paris right now? Oh, uh, okay. Jesus, I need to say three. What's your top three favorite restaurants <laughs> in Paris right now? I'm gonna I'm gonna have um. I'm gonna to have to come back to you with 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 a private list. I don't have anything that comes up there straight in my mind. All right, Chris. Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure having you on, and I uh, hope you have a great day. All right, thank you, Murdoch. Ciao. Any views expressed in this recording do not represent the view of any other third party and are the sole personal opinions of the speaker. Any reference to financial product does not constitute advice or recommendation and before any action you should seek proper advice from your financial professional. Australian listeners should head to www.moneysmart.gov.au to find more information on obtaining financial advice. To get in touch with York, head to our website www.yorkwealth.com.au.